All right, let's take our Bibles this morning to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter number 9. We're going to look some at chapter number 8 as well as we get started here in just a moment. But uh, we're going to begin here this morning, the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter number 9. And uh, Israel has been dispersed after invasions and judgment. Uh, and they are here make, coming back, remnants coming back and beginning to rebuild uh, contextually, Ezra, they're reestablishing, re the, the rebuilding the temple and the walls of the city and uh, settling back in. And so we find them uh, at a time when they've been gone, where they've been in captivity. We find them at a time where they have lost the context of the Word of God. They've lost copies of the Word of God. It's not, uh, we, we forget because Bibles are so easy for us to come by in all shapes and, and fashions. But in their day, you couldn't go buy a Bible. Uh, you had to come together and they would have readings and things of that nature because there were no printing presses or anything of that uh, like that at the time. And so uh, when the Bible talks about the Word of God being precious, uh, not only is it precious in the sense of its value to us, but it was precious in the sense of it wasn't available to them. Uh, and so they've gone for great lengths of time without any exposure truly to the scriptures. Uh, and so we find them here after their revival is underway and the word of God is being read and they've had things going on in chapter 8. We'll look back at that in a moment. But notice in chapter 9, verse number 1, <clears throat> they're responding. Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani and Kedemiel and Shabani, Bunny and Sherbi and Bani and Chaniah, and, the, and the cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Kedemiel, Bani and Hashbani and Sherebi and Hodijah and Shabanina and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now I want to speak this morning on this thought, conditions for revival. And let's pray. Father, as we come together, we pray that you would meet with us. Holy Spirit, we need you to work in our hearts. We need your empowerment. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glean some truths and to be reminded of some principles that will cause you to be able to work in our lives and to give empowerment to live lives that are pleasing unto our Savior. Lord Jesus, help us this morning, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen. Charles Finney, a great evangelist of another generation, said, Revival is not a miracle, but the conditions for revival must be met. So when we talk about that, sometimes in our way of thinking, we would think, hey, a revival, that's a miraculous working of God. But the truth of the matter is, is that revival and what we think of of revival, what we think of as a refreshing of the spirit of God working in our hearts and empowerment to live and to serve and uh, to preach and to share our faith should be the normal everyday life of a Christian. 
We need revival not because we need to take it to another level. We need revival because we need to be resurrected from a spiritual death. We need to be brought back to life. We need to be reinvigorated for the cause of Christ. We need to have, uh, find a new blessing and joy in serving the Lord. J. Vernon McGee said on revival, revival is to recover life and vigor and to return to consciousness. In that context, what I would say this morning is this, is that when we speak of a revival and when a pastor plans a revival and schedules it on the calendar, what I'm hoping and what we're hoping, generally speaking, will take place is that God's people, including the pastor, will come back to a consciousness of God. An awareness of God, an awareness of his power, his expectations, an awareness of what God has for us and what he's, what he's saying to us. It is to recover our lives and vigor. In other words, to be energized in serving the Lord. Sometimes we find ourselves, and I think if all of us are honest this morning, we'd have to say that sometimes there's, uh, there's, great, uh, there's a great excitement about coming together and serving the God, and sometimes we come because it's out of duty. Uh, sometimes we come and we can't stay awake because we're tuned out or we're so busy doing other things or for whatever reasons. Uh, and other times we come and we're on the edge of our seat because we're just hungry and starving for uh, the things of God. And, and when we look at revival and what we're praying for God to help us to do is to wake up and to come back to him. To come back to an awareness of what his expectations are and what, uh, what he is and who he is. And uh, that we strive to return to that relationship with him. Romans chapter 14 and verse 9 says, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Uh, and so we want God to be able to work in our hearts. And we want to see how God comes to fruition and what are the conditions. One of the things that I feel like is, is a responsibility as a pastor in the church is to try in the services that we have to create an opportunity or an atmosphere in which the Spirit of God can work. I believe that I could schedule the service and order the service and, uh, and have elements of the service or certain types of music or different things that would that would not please God and would not create an atmosphere where the Spirit of God could work but in actuality could suppress the Spirit's ability to work. That's not my goal. My goal is to create an atmosphere uh, that God is free to work in. Uh, I'm not trying to conjure up emotion. I'm not trying to steer people to an emotional response or to try to uh, get people to just react to, uh, you know, a lot of hype. And listen, I, I know how to preach to get everybody shouting amen and, uh, and in, some, in some circles running laps around the auditorium. But I, I really don't believe that things that are done just for that purpose are honoring to the Lord. And so it's about responding to God and what God has for us. Now I want you to notice here that he gives us a catalyst for revival. And the catalyst for revival is always the word of God. Uh, revival and what drives it is exposure to God's word and our response to it. Turn back to chapter number 8, if you will, for a moment. They uh, and Nehemiah are building the walls and Ezra has been building the temple and they're... 
They come across uh, the scripture and they, as they find the scriptures, they begin to read it. And we looked at a passage of uh, a few weeks, just a couple of weeks ago, where Josiah was going through, as king was going through earlier than this, the similar circumstances where the word of God had been lost and the temple had been basically abandoned and, uh, and left in ruins and he wanted to repair it. And in the course of repairing it, they found the word of God. And when they found the word of God and they read the word of God and they applied the word of God they had revival uh, and the same thing is what you see taking place here uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8 and all the people gathered themselves into the street gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded to Israel and Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. He's not thinking about that. If I go past, uh, those of you that are new this morning, if you're a visitor and you're thinking, oh, great, church, we started at 11, we're done at 12, you're in the wrong place because we never get done at 12. Uh, and so, but if I go past about 1230, some of you will start getting concerned. Uh, and so uh, you look at here, they're there from the morning until the middle of the day. And they're standing the whole time. And so now we, we stand for the first three songs of the service in the opening prayer uh, before we're seated. If, and, and, and not everybody can do that. And that's fine. If you can't, you need to be seated during those. That, that's no problem. Uh, but, but imagine being out here in this environment where they're standing until the midday. They're not in a comfortable place in a comfortable climate either. It can be quite extreme there in heat and cold. Uh, and so they're just out there because they're hungry for God's word. Uh, and it says, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Hey, listen, I don't know of a pastor anywhere in the world that doesn't come to church and hope and pray that the people will be attentive. Uh, and so, pastor, is everybody attentive? Not on your life. Uh, I mean, I, it's always, I'm always hopeful, but there's always, a, a, there's always some that uh, are counting ceiling tiles, and there are some that are checking the watch, and there are some of you that are uh, watching, watching the football scores, and, or you will be next Sunday, uh, and there are others that are, that are you know, playing bubble pop or, uh, or some other game on your phone, and, uh, and some are just uh, checked out, but then most are listening, and praise the Lord for it. Listen, if I won't open my heart to the Word of God, then God can't do anything for me. If I'm not willing to hear what he has to say, then I'm not going to make much progress. And all, they, all of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. It's amazing what happens whenever we pay attention to the word of God. Whenever we pay attention to what God has to say. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood and they made for the purpose. And beside him stood, uh, and he gives another list of names. And then in verse 5, and Ezra opened the book of the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And he's not saying that he was above all the people in his, in his position or in his level of godliness. It's saying that his position, like I am above the people this morning, I'm standing on a platform. I'm standing in an elevated, on an elevated structure so that I can be seen uh, and that I could, in his world, there was no PA system so that he could be heard uh, and that they, could, uh, that they could come there. And by the way, just because they had a pulpit of wood doesn't mean that every pulpit in the world has to be made out of wood in order for God to bless it, okay? Uh, and so it seems silly that I would need to say that, but there are people that believe that. And so 
uh, the same as they stand. They're standing for the whole service. I mean, there, there are times where, you know, it's if we got to stand if we're going to read the Bible. Uh, and then we sit down for the message, but then we don't stand back up when the other scriptures are mentioned. Uh, I'm not knocking those that want to stand before. That's a good practice. I don't have any, uh, any problem with it. But uh, at the same time, to take this passage and say that they stood. If I'm going to practice what this, practice, this, this passage is teaching that way, then we got to stand from the beginning of the service until the end of it. And then how many people do you think can make it from one week to the next? And so, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also Jeshua and Bonnie and Sherbiah and Jamin and Akub and the rest of the names that he lists there caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place and they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and they gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. There's a definition of what preaching is. It is to read and to give the sense and to cause to understand. That's our goal. In Nehemiah in verse 9, uh, which is the uh, Chirstatha and Ezra the priest, the scribe and the Levites taught the people and said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Isn't it amazing that their response to the exposure of who God is caused them to weep? Why is that? Well, when I get a good glimpse of who God is, I get a good glimpse of myself. When I get a good look at who and what God is, then it points out and elevates the, my cognizance or my awareness of my own sinful condition. And when I understand my sinful condition truly in comparison to the power and the presence of a holy and almighty God, it should cause me to grieve and to mourn over how short I fall from being what God would have me to be. And so they're broken. And brokenness is a good thing. It's a good thing when people come to the altar and weep and pray. It's a good thing when we're stirred by the Spirit of God. It's a good thing whenever we're made aware of our sin because if I'm never aware of it, I can never repent of it. I can never get my heart back in line with the Spirit of God and have my, uh, my, my heart either come to salvation or my fellowship to be restored with my Father. Then he, then he said unto them in verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto the, our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying, listen, I understand and appreciate that your awareness of sin causes you to be broken, but let God heal you and forgive you that you might have his joy. And they say, well, what is joy? There's an old, uh, an old proverb that says that joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the king is in, or when the master is in residence. When I worked at, when I worked at Camp David and I was in the Marines and uh, the president would come on a weekend visit and uh, there was a, a group and typically if it was a state, if it was a head of state visit, then there was a whole big entourage out there to greet the head of state. But if it was just our president that was coming, uh, then, then the, there would be one Marine that would be out uh, by, the, by the flagpole that flew the president's flag. It's just a flag with the president's seal on it. Uh, and he would stand there and he would stand at attention 
uh, and he would have uh, a flag that was at the top of the pole, but you couldn't really notice it because it was rolled up. And so it wasn't folded triangularly, it was in a roll, and it had a rubber band around it to hold it intact. And, uh, and that he would hold the halyard, which is the rope of the flagpole in his hand, uh, like this and stand at attention, and he would watch the helicopters as they landed. And uh, whenever the wheels of the helicopter touched the tarmac, at that instant, he would jerk that rope, and when he jerked the rope, the rubber band would break and the flag would unfurl, indicating that the president was present on the facility. Uh, and so it was, he's here. Whenever he took off and left, it was brought down. Uh, and so, and it only flew whenever the president was on the on site and on, uh, on the place. And so President Bush, the older President Bush, was always mesmerized by uh, the fact that they always got it exactly right. And he would watch every single time. And he came every weekend except for the month of August. It was very rare for him to not come to Camp David on the weekend. Uh, then he would, he would watch out the window very intently. And if he had guests with him, he would say, watch this, watch this. Wait, watch what happens with the flag when you feel the wheels touch. And he did not, I mean, it, never in all of his time did they ever miss it. To where the moment that he felt the wheels touch, that halyard popped and that flag unfurled because the president was on sight. Listen, joy should be present in the life of a child of God whenever the king is on sight. Whenever the master is on the throne. Whenever the Lord is present and paramount in our lives, then there should be joy in our heart. And so he goes on and he continues here and he says uh, that they are to have uh, joy and that the joy of the Lord uh, is their strength. And then uh, they make their way down the tabernacle or the feast of tabernacle is restored in, uh, in the latter part of, uh, of the, the chapter here. And the feast of tabernacles is an amazing feast. They would come together and they would build little tabernacles and they would live there essentially for a week. And uh, there was a whole big ceremony that went along with, uh, with the feast of tabernacles where they would take the, the ash from the altar and they would take it to the brook Kidron for disposal. And whenever they were there, they would cut willow branches and they would carry the willow branches back. And those willow branches would sound like the swooshing of wind, like the rushing end of the Holy Spirit and the sound of wind. Whenever the Holy Spirit was given in the book of Acts, it was all a picture of what Christ was going to do and what it was going to usher in. And the, there was a very precise uh, procedure that they followed through the Feast of the Tabernacle to where uh, there was a, a, the, the two parties, one went to get one element, one went to dispose of the ash and they would come back with water from the brook that they called living water and they would bring back and they would get back to, the, to Jerusalem at exactly the same time uh, and there would be an entourage on the wall that would sound the horns as they entered and they would come in around the altar uh, at the tabernacle and the people would be gathered around where they could see and whenever they got there then the, uh, the priest would take, uh, would take the blood and the water uh, from the sacrifice and the water, the living water from the brook and he would pour them out mingling them together as an offering to the Lord and when he did there was a great shout from all the people. They would bring those willow branches and lay them up against the altar to signify a tabernacle God meeting with them. And interestingly enough it's at that point in the New Testament Whenever Jesus stopped up, they would, they would have this great shout as the water was poured and then there was a holy hush that would fall over the crowd. And it was at the moment of the holy hush that Jesus cried out and said, I am that living water. 
it was Feast of Tabernacles. They're restoring the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of chapter 8 here. And as they restore that Feast of Tabernacles, then in chapter number 9, he comes and we see him telling us their response. The people are fasting and repenting of their sin that God might dwell with them and that he might impact their lives again. And so we see their response to the word of God paves the road to revival in their lives. Consider what they did as we look here in chapter number 9. The law is read and explained in chapter 8. And then again they're continuing on. And for one-fourth of the day they devoted it to the word of God. And another fourth of the day it took them a fourth of the day to confess their sin. And to worship God. So for one quarter of the day they are, they are reading and they're hearing read and preach the word of God and for another fourth of the day they're doing nothing but repenting and confessing their sin and worshiping God for his goodness and his greatness and his mercy. It's a reviving experience. It's a new experience for this generation. And chapter 9 shares with us here the steps of the revival or the process and the, the reaction of them to the word of God that brought revival in their life. Giving us the conditions that brought God's reviving to their spirit. And I believe this and we look and we understand the word of God that, that when I meet the conditions of revival, revival comes. It's not that I'm manufacturing an emotional reaction or response. It's that I am cultivating a spirit and an attitude in which the Spirit of God is free to work and to lead and guide my life into such a way that I am the Christian every day that God designed and intended for me to be. Revival is not intended to be short-lived and to just be something that comes once a, once a quarter or once every six months. It's something that ought to be what describes every moment of our lives. And the response of the Word of God paved the road. And we see in chapter 9, four basic principles here. The first thing that we see is that they separated themselves. And we're going to break these down in just a moment. But notice in verse 2, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place. And they read in the book of the law the Lord of the Lord their God. One fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And then we see in chapter and verse number five that they stood up and blessed the Lord your God forever and ever, and they blessed the glorious name uh, which is exalted ab ab above all blessing and praise. So what do they do? First, we see that or we're going to see that they separated themselves. There is a separating of themselves unto God. Then we see that they confess their sin. After they confess their sin, they worship the Lord. And when they were done worshiping the Lord, they praised the Lord. And so it was marking their life. Each condition was the natural result of the previous one. In other words, when I separate myself from the world and unto God, I see God for who he is. And it creates in me a broken spirit that compels me to then confess my sin. Say, like, Pastor, can I just come and confess my sin? Yes. But if I'm drawing myself and separating myself for the purpose of coming closer to God, I'm going to get a better picture of it and I'm going to have a more complete confession of my sin. There are some things in my life that the Spirit of God reveals to me are sinful that I may not recognize as sinful when I just casually consider them. I'll go through a prayer journal once in a while and one of the things that it does is it has a certain list of sin that it says, okay, on Monday, 
confess these sins. On Tuesday, confess these sins. On Wednesday, confess these sins. And on casual look, I look and say, you know what? I'm not guilty of that. But then if I really listen to the Spirit of God, I see where I am. Maybe I'm not in the sense that the, 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 just the casual observance of it would, would indicate. But if I really let the Spirit of God show me and pray, Lord, can, search my heart, try me. And see if there be any wicked way. I mean, it's amazing how God reveals to me things that I'm guilty of that I didn't think that I was guilty of. Seeing God puts a new light on the reality of my life and my sinfulness. When I compare myself to others, I may not look so bad. But when I compare myself to God, oh, woe is me. And when we look and we understand they, they separated, then that caused them to confess. And then when they were cleansed, then they spontaneously wanted to break out into worship because they're in awe of God and who he is. And as they went about their daily lives, they praised him because they were grateful and not entitled that God was working in their life. Each condition was the natural result of the previous one. So we're going to look this morning at these conditions for revival. One condition for revival in the, the start here is the condition for revival is the condition of separation. Charles Finney said that a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. A new beginning of obedience to God. What brings, what, what is it in my life that I need to do if I would have God's power and God's blessing and God's leading and God's enablement? If I, listen, if my children are going to have my good graces when they were under my authority and in my home, they better be obedient, number one. Now, number two, not only must they be obedient, but they better be obedient with the right kind of attitude and spirit about them. And so we always try to teach our kids that, you know, it's not enough to just do what you're told. You have to do it with the right spirit, the right attitude. Submitted to authority, surrendered to authority, being obedient to the word of God, to the will of God, to the leadership of God, and the leading of the God's spirit in our lives. And so uh, revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. When I as a Christian come to the realization that if I want God's power and blessing and I want the relationship that I have with him to be all that it could be, that I must be obedient to him. I can't pick and choose when I'll obey and when I'll, when I'll be in rebellion to him. I must have a heart that is, uh, that is seeking to be obedient to my God. Now I want you to notice some things about how they came. He says... Uh, and they separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And so they come, notice at the, verse, uh, at the end of verse number one, I miss the, the statement here, that they were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And so they had a practice that was more of a, a ritual to show outwardly what they were experiencing inwardly. I'm not saying that we need to go out uh, and, you know, rip our coats and put ashes on our head this morning, but that was their practice. And so when they would come to a place of repentance and showing uh, a sorrow for their sin and a reverence to God, they, and, and they, that they were grief stricken or, or that something horrible happened, they would tear their coat and they would put ash upon their head. They come humbly. So I want you to notice a couple of things, first of all, that they came, number one, sincerely. So we're talking about here the, the condition for revival of separation they are separating themselves from all strangers. Now, what does that mean, all strangers? So anyone that was in their camp that did not belong. In other words, that wasn't, that wasn't of their people, that was not, uh, that was not uh, a part of 
the entity of who they were. So it would look like uh, the people that had been adopted in would not be a stranger at this point. They're part of uh, they're part of Israel, but those that have traveled through or passed through or just residing for a while that are that are not submitted to God, that are not obedient to God, that are not worshiping only God, they are strangers. And so they separated themselves from the strangers. What's the biblical principle there in my life? Well, if I would be all that God has for me to be, then I must separate myself from those that are not going to help me live for God. Does that mean, you know, Pat, but I've got to work with this person or I have this in my family and I've got, I understand that we have those interactions and those relationships, but I'm going to be close to and I'm going to spend time with those that help me serve the Lord. If there's someone, however much, however long they've been a friend or however close of a family member they may be, if they are negatively affecting my spirit with God, my walk with God, my, uh, my relationship with God, then I'm going to begin to minimize my contact with them. It doesn't mean I'm going to be rude or unkind, but I don't need any more help not having a good walk with God than my own spirit creates within me. I'm a, I am a big enough problem myself. To not invite a lot of negative impact and influence in my life. And so, listen, I, I get it. If when I had when I when I worked in a factory, I had to interact and be kind and compassionate and loving to the people that I worked with, but I didn't go out with them after. I, I didn't necessarily spend a lot of time with them at break time. I, I didn't always not, I didn't like try to be rude and go isolate myself. But if the conversation was dishonoring to God, I didn't stay there and participate in it. I didn't laugh at their, at their crude jokes and, uh, and ungodly jokes or immoral jokes. I didn't participate in the telling of them. And, and there was a time when I first went to work there that I did. And then I got right with the Lord and I had to begin to pull away from that and separate myself from that. There are, uh, there are certain members of our family that we're, we see at holidays. We're kind. We, if they need us, we're there. If they need help, we help them. If they, uh, if they need encouragement, we try to encourage them. If they need prayer, we try to pray for them. But I'm not going to spend hour upon hour upon hour with them if they're going to if they're going to not help me serve God there's a balance that can be struck that helps me to honor Christ and honor my family and have a good walk with God and what he's saying here is that they came with the attitude that we are aware of our sin we're coming humbly in sackcloth and ash and we're going to separate ourselves, God, to you. So often we get caught up in, well, i got to separate from this and separate from that. Listen, separate to the Lord and all the rest of it will sort itself out. Okay, my wife, I don't know where she's at. It's probably in the nursery. I know she's here, but I assume she's in the nursery this morning. But for 33 years that we've been married, uh, and, and f almost four years before our wedding date, uh, I, since, since, put it, since November the 15th of 1989 when we met, uh, or, or excuse me, 1985 when we met, uh, we have been, I have been separated to her. The people that I didn't interact with or the dates that I didn't go on or the girlfriends that I didn't have really never even been a second thought. It really was no sacrifice. It was no problem. It's not something I look back with any regret upon. Why? Because I love my wife. And God's, God's blessed us in our life together. And we have a love for one another. So the, the, the separating ourselves to each other 
excluded us from all others in a marriage relationship. But we didn't miss anything. And so often today, people don't want to separate their lives to God because they feel of what they're going to miss. And I'm just telling you, if you give your heart to Christ, you're not missing anything. Amen. When I walk with God and have his, his blessing and His power in my life, I'm not missing a thing. Pastor, I can't go do this and I can't go do that. Listen, th there are some things, you're right, that are very obvious that Christians shouldn't do. Uh, but, but I'm not here this morning and the emphasis of the message is to not try to define and categorize all of those different things. I'm just telling you that if your heart is to come humbly before God and to serve Him and to worship Him and to walk with Him and you separate yourself to Him, that in time all of the things that displease Him will fall by the wayside and you'll never even miss them because you love Him so much. And that's when a Christian experiences joy and revival. How did they come? They came sincerely. They came fasting and with sackcloth. They were, they were serious about their relationship with God. Their revival and the spirit of revival must employ a sincere desire for God. If you're here this morning and you do not have a sincere desire for God, you will not have revival. It won't happen. But if you have a sincere desire for God, it can when I have a sincere desire for God, I, a sincere desire for God, I'll draw close to Him. They, they came sincerely. Secondly, we see that they separated themselves from those who stood in opposition to God. And listen, I, I just, I, I don't have time to spend time with people that have no interest in the things of God. Now, I'll help them. I have a neighbor, I was out, my wife and I were, we were walking the other morning and, and uh, we we're, going down around a corner and there was a little old lady out there that was in her moo moo still uh, and she's uh, she's out there with a shovel and I say little old lady she's probably in her late 70s and she's out there with a shovel and her lawn hasn't been mowed in quite some time and she's got grass growing up in the crack between the the pavement of the asphalt of the street and uh, and the concrete of the curbing and she's out there with this shovel trying desperately to cut this grass loose and we walk around the corner and uh, and she looks and she's all exasperated and she's like I need a man to help me with this and I tried to do this a couple of days ago and I've been in bed with my back hurt for two days and I've got to get this this done and she said would you help me so I took about five minutes and I took her shovel and it took that's all the more it took to just to just kind of cut that loose and scoop it up it was quite a bit but and it was a big pile and she said do you know anybody that can uh, that I could hire to mow my lawn and I said you know as a matter of fact I do my neighbor right next door he mows four or five lawns a week and I said I'll give him your number tonight uh, and I remembered and I did and he went down she had already found someone but he went down there and, uh, and he saw my point is this I, it, as a Christian should we step out and help someone that maybe doesn't think like we are or we do or that's not a believer or that uh, is in need of course we should should we go out of our way to help them when we can of course we should and should we look for an opportunity to share the gospel when we can of course we should but I'm not going to her house for dinner tonight either and I'm not going to skip things that I need to do in my relationship with God so that I can go spend time with people maybe that I enjoy spending time with but that are, gonna, that, that are going to be a detriment to my walk with the, with the Lord. 
I want to be cautious about those things. I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I want to be helpful. I want to be godly. I want to have a sweet disposition as much as I can. Uh, I, I, that's a battle for me sometimes. Uh, I want to uh, kind of communicate and share the love of God and be, be, you know, do what I can do. But when it comes down to, to my close personal relationships, I need close personal relationships with people that are not draining my walk with God and my spirit with God, but that are feeding it that are encouraging it. And if I separate myself from those who hurt my walk with God unto God and separated myself to the Lord, then God can do something special and significant in my life. So how did they come? And this condition of revival, they separated themselves to God. What did that produce? It produced a confession of their sin. And so we look and see secondly that revival condition number two is confession. An old Pentecostal preacher of the early eight, late 18, early 1900s, I don't agree with a lot of his theology, but I agree with this statement that he made. His name was Frank Bartleman, said the depth of our repentance will determine the depth of our revival. If I'm just, you know, casually, flippantly, oh yeah, God, I offend, you know, and we understand this. Look, if I come to Pedro here, uh, sitting up here on the front row, and I do something to hurt Pedro, and it really hurts his feelings. It's like he's really crushed by it, and he's just he's devastated. He's walking around crying and moping, and he's not even functioning normally. Uh, and so, uh, and I just come to him, and I'm made aware of it, and I come to him and say, oh, Pedro, I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. I mean, I hope you get over that soon. Sorry. Did I, did, I, did I come and repent and apologize? Well, technically, yeah, but not really. I'm not really taking into account how it affected him, how it hurt him, how it grieved him, how it impacted him. Listen, that's the way that we are in confessing our sin to God sometimes. Oh, I, I sinned against you, Lord? Oh, I committed this sin. Oh, well, forgive me. The Bible says that you're faithful and just to forgive me my sins. That's not repentance. Genuine, Christians don't, don't experience genuine conviction, repentance, and, and cleansing from God because we seldom genuinely, genuinely look at our sin and the depth of our sin and how hurtful it is to God. Do you understand this morning that our sin sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary? Do you understand this morning that as a saved person that my sin grieves the spirit of God? He walks around in our life, if we're in sin, in a state of grief. The older I get, the more I understand that. I used to think I understood it. I understand it more every passing day these days. To walk around, walk, to just walk with a state and a heavy heart of grief. Oh, not, I'm not saying overwhelmed with grief. I'm just saying certain things that we experience in life and that we see go on within our relationships that cause us grief. We grieve the Spirit of God. And the more that we understand that and the more that we become aware of it, the, the more deeply that we love him, then the more deeply we'll be affected by how we hurt him. You know, honestly, this morning, if I, if I hurt someone's feelings that I have no relationship with, it bothers me a little bit. I don't want to be that kind of a person. But if I hurt someone that I deeply love, it hurts me deeply. And I want to go to great lengths to make it right. Is God just a casual relationship in our life to where our grieving him, our hurting him is, doesn't mean that much to us and doesn't affect us that much that we can just, oh God, I'm sorry, and just continue on? Or does it stop us in our tracks and say, I can't do another thing until I make this right? I've had those types of things where I've offended someone and I thought, uh, you know, I, I, I've got to cancel basically everything else until this is fixed. Because it was that important. 
And when we see our sin in that way and want our relationship with God to be like that, the depth of our repentance will determine the depth of our revival. What is confession? Confession is not just going to God and saying, oh God, I sinned against you. The Bible says this is a sin, I'm sorry. Confession is to agree with God's word instead of offering excuses or attempting to rationalize our actions. See, most people these days can just rationalize their sin. We can have conversations and, uh, and we can offer up, this is what, yeah, but, and they've got, uh, this person's got it rationalized this way and this person's got it rationalized this way and they just kind of spin it so that they're always the one that comes out looking like they're on top and they don't have to take responsibility for any of their actions. That's not confession. Confession is not coming up with an excuse to God so that I don't have to be uh, affected or guilty or, uh, or have a problem with God because of my sin. Confession is to agree with God about my sin and its effect on my life and its power to deprive me of a relationship with God. John chapter 13 and verse 8 says, I will wash thee, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Of course, there in the upper room, and Peter's not wanting to be washed, not wanting to humble himself. And Jesus says to him, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And listen, if I'm, if I'm not willing to come to God humbly and say, Father, cleanse me. Forgive my sin. I can have, I can have no real relationship with him. To agree with God is paramount. So what do they do? They come and they confess their own sin. They come here and right off the bat, they, uh, they separate themselves from a stranger and they stood and they confessed their sins. They confess their sins. Whatever I'm aware of. And listen, that, that's a good practice every Christian should have in their life. When we know that we've sinned, God, I committed this sin, please forgive me. Help me not to go and do this again. Help me not to keep repeating this. We will, in many cases, repeat those sins. But if our attitude is, I'm just going to confess it and do it again. That's not genuine repentance. Our attitude should be, I'm going to strive to not continue to go to, to keep making the same offense to God. You know, when we look and we understand what he's talking about, they're confessing their own sin. And then whenever we've confessed everything that we need, and this is what David did in Psalms, he confessed his sin and he said, Father, I've confessed my sin, but if I miss something, show me. I'm paraphrasing, but search me and try me and know my ways and see if there be any wicked way in me. Why? Because there may be some things that I've, I've become so accustomed to, I've lost sight of the fact that it actually is offensive to God. That I'm hurting the Lord and depriving my relation, hurting my relationship with him. And this is interesting. Not only do they confess their own sin, but secondly, they confess the sins of their fathers. Do you realize that much of what they were paying for was, a, was judgment upon previous generations? The sin that was passed from the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't have, that could be a whole series of sermons and we don't have time to get into the de in depth this morning. But just to say that there are sins of those that have gone before us that need to be confessed and forsaken. Things that we do that are natural to us because it's what the generation before did. And that's our excuse. The generation did this. And my, you know, my father did this. And my grandfather did that. And my great-grandfather did that. And, uh, and it's just natural to me. It's just a normal thing. It's what our family does. Listen, if it's sinful and it cuts against what the scripture says and teaches, I must confess that and forsake it just like as if it was my own. I want to come to the Lord and confess my sin. I don't want to walk in the way of my fathers. I want to walk in the way of the Lord. I want to walk in a way that pleases him. John chapter 
uh, or First John, excuse me, chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 alludes to the fact that when we walk in the light or the word of God, it will reveal how far short we fall of his glory. And that prompts confession. Confession. See, when I understand where I am and where God is, the automatic response is confession. I must confess my sin. I'll separate myself to God and I'll see God for who he is. And then I'll confess my sin before him and seek his forgiveness. I want to walk in the light of his word. And then what's that going to prompt? Well, when my heart is cleansed and I'm right with God, my spontaneous response is worship. It's time to go to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, but you see that. He comes into the throne of God and he sees the cherubim and the seraphim and he sees God high and on his throne. And his immediate response is to be crushed by his own presence. And he falls on his face and he says, I am undone. But when it's all said and done, he stands up and worships. Amen. <laughs> Confess and then worship. When we talk about worship, we see Spurgeon put it this way. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. You know, our problem is this morning is that we don't take the word of God seriously. We don't hold it in high regard like it once was. We, we don't do it culturally. Do you realize that our founding fathers made statements like it is, and I believe it was George Washington that said this, that it is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. That's not what you hear coming from our government today. And that's why we're in the shape that we're in today as a nation. But our mind and our, and our intellect and our way of going about life is we have to come to understand that if I want revival, I need to revere and hold in high esteem the Word of God. It's not just another book. It is the book. And it's not just a good book. It is God's holy word. It says holy Bible on it. That's not a title. It is a revelation of Christ. It is Jesus showing us who he is and what he is and how we came to be and what his expectations are. And listen, I must come and worship to him. What is worship? The word worship means literally to adore. Can I say this morning that I adore my God. You see someone that, uh, and it's funny, I remember when I was in high school and uh, we traveled to another school to play a game. It was a Christian school and it was a bigger Christian schools of four or 500 kids, some of them. And I think the one I was in had about 350 or 400. And we went for a basketball game and, and there was a, a coach there that had moved from, uh, for, from, a school that I was in in southern, around the St. Louis area in Illinois, up to the Chicago area in Schaumburg. And I was at that point at a school in Downers Grove. And, uh, and we went up to Schaumburg for this game. And then they were showing this new couple that had just come into the church. It was the beginning of the, of the, of the school year. And, uh, and they were talking about how, uh, yeah, that, that's the guy, that's the couple over there that just got married. And somebody that was traveling with us, one of the, uh, one of the teachers was like, well, which one was it? I haven't, I haven't met him yet. And I said, yeah, it's, no, it's not that. There was it that one. No, it's not them. That, that guy was over here talking to another man and his wife was over here talking to someone. It's, it's that one over there where they were still together. You know, you're in a crowd and the husband goes this way and the wife goes this way. This, this is, they're right here. And so, yeah, you can tell he's, he worships the ground that she walks on. You ever heard that term? And every lady wants to be loved that way. 
And every lady should be loved that way. But we also should love God that way. Can we say this morning that we adore him? And it be more than just a line in a song or a punchline. Worship is adoration. Worship by definition means to adore, to pay divine honor to. It is to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. And veneration is not a word that we use very often. And what it means is this. It is the highest degree of respect and reverence mingled with some degree of awe. Worship is not just saying, God, I, I, I love you. It is having an awe of him. And sometimes we get into a world where we lose sight of the awe. We love the Lord. We want to worship the Lord, but we don't stand in awe of him. We should stand in awe of the Lord. We should stand in awe at his presence. We should come to a place where we appreciate what we're going through. I don't talk about uh, my time at Camp David in great detail very often, but one of the benefits, one of the things that Sonia and I were able to do whenever I was there, we were considered part of the White House staff. It was just an extension out of the White House military office and uh, the, the Marine Helicopter Squadron that flies the, the, is part of that. The uh, Air Force One crew is part of that. Uh, and so every branch is re of the service is represented there. And one of the things that we could do every year is we got invited to a Christmas party at the White House. We had a certain way that we had to dress. It wasn't in uniform. It was a civilian attire uh, function. Uh, and they had multiple Christmas parties. It wasn't like it was just the only thing that they did all year. But, uh, but we've got, I've still got Christmas cards from President Reagan and from President Bush that we put out at Christmas time every year. Uh, and we would go to the White House. Well, I've been to the White House on a tour just through it. I went in the, as a high school senior on a senior trip. And whenever you go through and the Secret Service checks you in and they've got all of the, all of the areas that are kind of cordoned off, they're roped off, uh, and you can look into the rooms and you can see the paintings and you can see the picture or the, 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 the furniture and all of those types of things. So uh, we, we, I, I, I love history. I love American history. I love uh, history in general, but I, I went, the first time I went to D.C., it was someplace, I was 18, I always wanted to go there. And I mean, I was just like walking around in awe everywhere that I went. I remember the first time I walked up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and then uh, to the Vietnam Veterans, uh, the, the Vietnam Memorial, and then uh, going into the Capitol building and uh, standing and looking up at the top of the rotunda and seeing George Washington looking down in the painting up in the rotunda uh, there in the, in the great area there. And uh, I remember all of those things and being in awe of that. And then I remember going through the White House and seeing and, and thinking in my mind, man, every, uh, almost every president has sat here and thinking about Abraham Lincoln and, uh, and in a day whenever you could come and actually knock on the door and just have a conversation with the president. Uh, and so, uh, and, and it was just a different time. And I stood, and it was so awesome. And we go to our first Christmas party, and we walk in, and none of the, none of the barriers are up. And we could take pictures. So the tourists can't take pictures because the flash on your phone will fade the pictures. We, we could take pictures. There were things prepared just for us. We could sit on the furniture. We could converse with other people. We could do different the things that just on a regular day 
no one could ever do. And we, we sat there and we talked and we interacted with uh, other Marines and sailors that, that we served with that we knew that were there. And, and we just all kind of stood around kind of mesmerized at, the, at, at where we were and the significance of where we were. It was awesome. If you've never been there, I don't know how to really communicate it to get that across. I have a picture in my office at the house of me shaking hands with President Bush in the Oval Office. And so it's framed, it hangs, it has just a little, I'm sure it's probably a stenographed word on there too, Corporal Cripps, you know, best wishes, George Bush. But it was actually in the Oval Office. And it wasn't that big of a deal as far as the event goes itself. It wasn't like I went to the Oval Office and sat there and had a conversation for 30 minutes with the president, right? It's the, we, we, there were probably 100 of us that were there. And we went in one at a time. And he took maybe a minute or two with every, every person that came through, whatever branch of the service or was, that were just social. But I'm just telling you, to walk into that room was awesome. And what it represented... It represented a lot more at the time than it does now. It was at a time when our presidents were still honorable men. Not what the last four or five have been of either party. It was awesome. I'm just trying to communicate this morning that when we come, just singing songs that glorify God does not qualify as worship. Do I come and am I in awe of him? If there's, if I've lost the element of awe of his awesomeness, I've lost the ability to truly worship him. There must be an awe of who and what God is. It is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I'm really not worshiping God until I could say that I love him extravagantly and I obey him extremely. You know, most of the time when we look at obedience, we just, we want that yoke off of us. We want to go do what we want to do. I have liberty in Christ. Yeah, we have liberty to do the will of God. Not to live the way that we want. We have liberty to obey him. We have liberty to love him. We have liberty to serve him. It is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Two thoughts about this before we move to our final point this morning. Number one, true, true worship expresses love and adoration. True worship expresses love and adoration. I can come to church and I can go through the motions. Truth be told, I think if all of us were honest, we would say that sometimes that's where we find ourselves. It's a Sunday. It's just what we do. But that's not going to bring revival. That's not going to stir my soul. Do we come expressing true, genuine love and adoration? Secondly, I would say this, that true worship is evidenced by an obedient life. It's not enough to just say, I love you. I have to live it. Hey, listen, if I went to my wife this afternoon when we got home and I said, you know what, Sonia, I love you. And then didn't come home tonight. If I said, I love you. And then treated her bad. If I said, I love you. 
but was embarrassed to tell others about who she is whenever we're out in public and introduce her to others. I'm not expressing love to her. Genuine, true worship is evidenced by an obedient life. If I'm truly worshiping my God, I will be obedient to Him. I will love Him. I will adore Him. So what did they do? Well, first they separated themselves. Then they confessed their sin. Then after they're cleansed, they broke out into worship to express their great love and then the awesomeness of God. And then they praised. So praise, worship, pastor, what's the difference? Well, worship is stopping and holding God in high regard and awe. Praise is to honor and to express gratitude or to commend. So when I worship God, I'm expressing my, my love to Him. When I praise Him, I'm expressing my gratitude. And too many Christians this morning come with an attitude of we're owed something from God. We have an entitlement attitude rather than an attitude of gratitude. We feel like, God, you, you're my Father, you owe me this. God doesn't owe us anything. So, but, but pastor, doesn't he love us? Yes, he does. Doesn't he bless us? Yes, he does. But he doesn't owe it to us. There are a lot of things that I do for my children even now that they're all married and out on their own and adults that I don't have to do. I don't owe them. Whatever responsibilities that I had as their father as far as like bringing them to adulthood and teaching them how to provide for themselves and to live on their own, I have fulfilled. And at this, stand, at this point in their lives, I, 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 biblically speaking, I don't owe them anything. But I still do an awful lot for them. Not because I have to, but because I love them. Because I, I want to. Sometimes they need help. Sometimes they need encouragement. Sometimes they, but it's not because they're owed. It's because I love. God doesn't owe you anything, but he loves you dearly. And when we come to understand and go and approach God, not from the standpoint of God, you better answer this prayer. You have to do this or you have to give me that because you owe me. I'm not adoring God. But when I come realizing, God, you owe me nothing, but you love me dearly. And you said I could come boldly before your throne. And I've come and I've recognized your power and I've separated myself to you. You're what's important in my life. And I confessed my sin. I don't want to be offensive to you. And I worship you. And I pour out my adoration upon you. I stand in awe of you. And now I've just got to go tell everybody about how wonderful you are to me. I'm praising him. That's revival. That's what a Christian life should look like every day. So we see fourthly here this, this morning that the fourth condition of revival is simply praise. But praise is a natural expression of what God has done to honor him, to express my gratitude to him, and to point others to him. I'm saying this morning that when we meet the conditions of revival, that God will bring revival. Because revival is not, again, some strange, miraculous thing that should happen once in a while. Revival is something that should exist every moment of every Christian's life. It's simply what a Christian life 
should look like. So, Pastor, but I have to confess my sin, and revivals come and revivals go, and it doesn't stick around long. And I mentioned in the starting point class this morning this. I may, I may use it again next week because I, I kind of like it. But Billy Sunday, if you're not familiar with who Billy Sunday was, he was a professional baseball player in the early 1900s that gave his heart to Christ. He got saved, I believe, to Pacific Garden Mission. He was a drunk. God saved him and turned his life around and called him to preach. And he was a well-known evangelist. In fact, if you go back and check uh, history, he was the primary voice that influenced the, the enacting of the laws on prohibition in the early part of the 20th century. And they'd say to him, Billy, you're out here preaching about revival all the time. Don't you realize that revival just doesn't last very long? It just comes and goes. And he says, well, you may be right, but so does a bath. It still does you good. He said, revival's just temporary. Yeah, so is a bath, but it still does you some good. What I'm saying this morning is that too many Christians, too many Christians allow revival to be something in their life that's temporary. And we miss out on the very best of what God has for us. We miss out on his blessing. We miss out on his power. We miss out on his joy. We miss out on the lives that are fulfilled and that we have confidence are being used by God to make a difference in the lives of others. Because we simply want to stay separated to the things that we love rather than to him. We don't, we've lost our awe. We fail to be obedient. We don't confess our sin. But if we would, if we would, rediscover the word of God see ourselves in our sinful state, confess, be cleansed, worship, and praise Him. We would have joy that would draw people to Christ and we would live a life that's powerful and that's meaningful and that's filled with joy because we would be revived.